That is the great hope we have. Turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're in the series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow, from Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And this is the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the church will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that your word does stand forever and that it's true and certain. So, Father, this morning we ask your Spirit's help to grasp what your word's saying. And that, Father, through your word and through the sacrament, Father, you would speak to us. And, Father, you would encourage us. And that, Father, you would give us uh, discernment, Father, we would pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Four British theologians declared their agreement on living. They said this. They said, all you need is love. And uh, after all, they'd, they'd sung that this thing called love is a many-splendored thing and makes the world go round. And maybe we can excuse them for their sloppy thinking about theology. And the thing is, if they're right, then today's letter is not needed. It would never have been written. Because if it's one thing the people of Thyatira have, it is love. But much to the chagrin of the followers of love theology everywhere, it becomes obvious there are things on beyond love uh, when it comes to living, particularly when it comes to following Christ. And so to see what those things are and how they impact our lives, let's go to the text and to the table. Verse 18, and to the angel in the church at Thyatira write, Okay, we've started the circle now. Thyatira lies some 40 miles southeast of Pergamon. It's the smallest of the seven cities that Jesus writes his letter to. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, uh, where the churches are. Uh, and uh, Pliny the Elder describes unimportant. Uh, but here's a lesson often lost on the 21st century church. Churches in small places are just as essential and just as important as churches in large cities, great cities. 
One scholar notes, he says, that the, the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. So here's a new scoop for some people that need to hear it. Churches in downtown Chestnut Mountain and Lula are just as essential and significant as churches in New York City and Atlanta. All right? Um, and uh, Athot Tower was a trade center. They had a lot of guilds of craftsmen there. They worked in bronze, some in wool, linen, leather, dyed fabric, uh, particularly dyed purple uh, using the uh, matter plant uh, root and uh, shellfish called murex. It was a very expensive dye, so it was only affordable uh, by the, uh, the, those of royalty and of great wealth. You may recall Lydia, who was the first convert in Philippi over in the book of Acts, was uh, a businesswoman coming from Thyatira. Now, as we've seen in the other cities, uh, each of these guilds that you belong to would have their own god or goddess uh, that uh, the guild felt was responsible for their success or for their failure. Uh, We've seen that the business and social networking centers around these pagan temples. Uh, So typically, if you want to make a go of your business, then you've got to be in the guild and you had to participate in the typical pagan worship services that went along with that, which included sexual immorality, uh, reflecting, rebellion against, and confusion about human sexuality. Now, I want us to note, uh, as we then think about that, which characteristic Jesus draws attention to, bringing over from chapter 1 to describe himself. Here's what we read. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Going in reverse order, you need to know that the bronze craftsman in Thyatira had a, a special formula, a secret formula, that allowed them to make a better bronze alloy uh, than a lot of other places. And that their bronze, if you wanted good bronze, you got bronze from Thyatira. That was the prized bronze. And part of the implications that goes through this is that that was a a secret. Uh, Yet, here's Jesus with these eyes of fire, and He knows all secrets. Uh, Why? Because He has eyes of fire that can see and, and pierce even the human heart. He can see whatever He wants to see. He also says He's the Son of God. He's going back to Psalm 2 there, uh, which means as as the Son of God in Psalm 2, He is the divine judge over all things. And so this great searcher of the hearts has great praise for the church in Thyatira. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus gives five characteristics of the church there that I think any of us would want to be used to describe here or any other church for that matter. Uh, they, they have great works. Uh, they are loving. They exhibit great faith. They serve one another. They patiently endure uh, what's going on, the persecution they face, and the difficulties and the challenges of the life. And they're growing in their faith. Notice the works they're doing now exceed the works they did at first. 
so it's, it's, a, it's a growth process for them. God is certainly doing a great work among them. And they're really good at loving. And they're growing in that love. Now let's think back for a moment. The church in Ephesus, we saw that they had great theology, but what did they not have? They'd lost their love, right. On the other hand, the people in Thyatira have a great love, uh, rock-solid love. But as we're going to see, they don't have such sound theology. Dennis Johnson paraphrases it this way, Jesus' rebuke. I love your love, but I hate your tolerance. And here's how Jesus puts it, verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. All right. Perhaps being too loving... uh, the result is they tolerated sin. The proper application of their theology was lacking, if not the theology itself. They had not learned to discern the impact of the teaching of Jezebel on their lives. So as a result, what's their sin? Well, it's very closely aligned to what we saw in Pergamon, what was going on there. And you may wonder, here we go, why the continued battle against temptation to be involved in sexual immorality? Well, one reason is that's exactly the struggle that continues today in the church and the culture. So let's look at this. First, who was this Jezebel? It's probably the nickname for a woman who's there in Thyatira, one of the teachers in the church. Hopefully not one of the teachers at this thing on Saturday, all right? Um, So, uh, you know, but it's it's a teacher in the church. Now, why the nickname? You remember the original Jezebel? You know, there's nobody names their girls Jezebel. They they just don't do it. So that tells you a lot about her uh, right off the bat. She was the incredibly wicked wife of one of the northern kingdom of Israel's last kings, Ahab. Uh, and she is known for leading the nation into sexual immorality and idolatry, and especially leading her husband Ahab that way, a very weak husband. Uh, she's the most notoriously evil woman in the northern kingdom of Israel's history. And her daughter, Athaliah, is the most notoriously evil woman in the southern kingdom of Judah's history. Uh, and the, both of them would be on history's list of the most notorious women who ever lived. The theological description is they were bad to the bone, all right? Uh, So, uh, in all probability, what you've got is someone acting in the spirit of Jezebel has given approval to involvement in the pagan worship practices, and that means getting involved in sexual immorality. And the reason would be the sort of a Gnostic view of dualism, our spirit is saved and it's good, it's pure. And our bodies are at best evil or don't matter at all. So the teaching is if you engage in this sexual immorality, well, you know, it's, it's inconsequential. Do what you want, whatever it is. It's kind of teaching and thinking 
then seduces the people into becoming tolerant of immoral behavior and teaching about sexual, human sexuality, and then acting as if Jesus somehow grants us license to engage in this as well. And the thought process is if we can just compromise a little bit, just a little bit, it's going to lead to an easier uh, acceptance, a road to that acceptance in the community. If we'll just compromise with the world's view of human sexuality, why then people will listen to us about Jesus. They'll include us in what they're doing. Now, I want you to understand where this leads. This is a quote from a Duke University chapel service this week. This is the woman leading in worship, and this is the response the congregation makes to what she said. I won't even read what she said. You, this is what they're, how they're describing God. You are a mother, father, and parent. You are sister, brother, and sibling. You are drag queen and trans man and gender fluid incapable of limiting your vast expressions of beauty. Friends, real love requires discernment in how we live. Real love does not tolerate people participating in self-destructive behavior. Real love for Christ does not result in our engaging in self-destructive behavior. They were being tolerant to the point that we're told they're participating in the deep things of Satan. Now, they would have called it the deep things of God, that God had some hidden special knowledge, you know, that only the most spiritual can grasp. Yet making it clear here, Satan is at work in their midst, despite all the outward good things that were happening and the, the change taking place and seeking to destroy the church. And friends, that should alarm us. And to be sure, we engage always in a great balancing act. We truly want to love well people who are engaged in sinful behavior. But we want to maintain doctrinal purity that guides and directs that love. Our culture deserves to hear the truth of God when it comes to the destructive sexual confusion of our day. And there is a temptation to compromise, thinking if we do it just a little bit, we'll be a little more effective. It'll make us seem a little more loving if we just ignore what the Bible clearly teaches. But friends, compromise, not truly discerning, leads to destruction. And clearly, we've got to get this right, uh, because God's going to act in judgment against Jezebel. And those led astray by her teaching her behavior. Notice verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those coming into adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her work. And I will strike her children dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. We can rest assured. Uh, the blazing fire eyes of Jesus are, are searching our hearts. And His bronze feet are ready to, to, to stomp out the rebellious. Jesus says here, He'll hold the churches. Did you get that? All the churches accountable. 
And if you go back and read about how the original Jezebel was judged by God in the Old Testament, I won't want to spoil if you're not aware, but it involves being thrown out a window and some dogs. I'll just leave it at that. Then we're going to see how devastating judgment can be. So how do we respond? We says those who are involved need to repent. Repentance is turning away from our sin and our, our evil behavior and our thinking and our attitudes. Have a change of heart about it. Remembering how destructive sexual morality is both to the individual and to the body of Christ. Uh, and we should not tolerate it in any form. So as we come to the table today, we repent, confess, ask God's forgiveness, seek His help to walk by faith. And I will tell you, God is gracious. Our sins, there are many, but what did we sing? His mercy is more. And then he says to those not involved, the encouragement is to, to hang on. But to this teaching to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Friends, it's not easy in a place like Thyatira uh, to live as an outcast, uh, to walk against the cultural stream of the river of life. But we must. We must take a stand until Jesus comes, living as people of God with great expectations that Jesus will come again. And that's what keeps us going. I hope in Christ that He will make all things right one day. And so we hold fast to Him. And so we're to keep on doing the good works we've been doing, he says. What Paul says was the Lord's prepared for us ahead of time to do. And amazingly, do you notice what the reward here is? Authority and rule over the nations. Listen, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earth and God's pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. These are people living in a small, no-count, unimportant town. And what did Jesus say? He's borrowing here from Psalm 2, uh, where he rules over the nations. He says, be prepared to join him and reign with him over the nations, even as we sang this morning when we gathered for worship. Friends, then there's an even greater blessing promised. The greater reward, what? And I will give him the morning star. Now this connects us with last week. Balaam referred to the morning star in one of his blessings he pronounced on Israel. Uh, and, uh, and we found out in Revelation 22 that that morning star, as we read earlier, is Jesus himself. So we tie this in with the hope of a king. This is the sign the Magi clung to, Numbers 24, when they, they came to Bethlehem. And now the folks here in Thyatira get the morning star. Friends, the reward for faithfulness is Jesus himself. Uh, and, and there's no better reward. The people of this small, nowhere place gain significance through participation with Christ, through our identity in Christ. Even though the world looks and sees us as totally unimportant. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, we're called to listen. The danger of tolerating one bad apple can spoil the whole basket. Uh, 
We've got to go on beyond love and be vigilant to keep saying no to the sin of sexual morality and confusion. Say no to rebelling against a God who created us male and female. A repeated thing we must do because of repeated strategy with repeated effectiveness on Satan's part. And friends, I would dare say the dominant sin of our day as it was in the first century. So what about us? Uh, yes, we've got to be loving. But beyond that, we've got to learn to discern. Stay aware of the systematic and systemic attack on sexual morality. And I say to the extent that anyone here might be involved with it or tolerate it, uh, when it's destroying uh, our and other people's lives, we must repent. And obviously, this is a key battle for the persecuted church to deal with because taking such a stand will lead to persecution. To learn to discern, we must know God's Word. We must know, need to know what the Bible teaches about love. It's not about what we feel or what other people feel. It's not about sympathy for their stories. To be sure, we can be sympathetic for people's pain, and we should be. But first and foremost, it's about a God uh, and what God says, and a God who is love. And second, just because the culture is drowning in sexual morality confusion doesn't mean we have to drown with them. Keep in mind when people tell us, judge not, well, notice, we are judges. We will be judges. In reality, we must acknowledge we live in a Psalm 2 world with deep-seated and intense rebellion against God and His Word. And God responds by installing King Jesus on the throne. He demands allegiance to Him. And we need to respond with a Psalm 1 life, sinking our roots deep into the soil of God's Word. And that becomes the basis for the Holy Spirit to guide us in how to live. And to the one who conquers, we get the true prize. We get the only prize that really matters. We get Jesus, the morning star. And he's the one who invites us to the table today. It's his table. It's where we're strengthened in our walk with him as we contemplate this morning his death and his resurrection. This table gives us a a perspective on the wickedness of our sin as we contemplate the price Christ paid. This table shows us the depth of his love for us. It increases our desire to walk with Jesus. It's a call to a grace-fueled holiness that, that picks us up when we do fall. And we will. It reminds us that loved by God, we are to be loving others. And so Jesus invites you to his table today. He invites all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are members of good standing of an evangelical church. And if you're not yet a believer, we're delighted you're here, but the Bible urges you not to participate in the meal. Instead, we have some suggestions there in the bulletin for you to, uh, to, to, to follow. And, and we'd love to share with you following the service how you can know Jesus. Likewise, children not yet met with the session should not partake, but if you have that desire, please see me. We have another class in just a couple of weeks. As believers, we're called to recognize the body of Christ. It means recognizing what Jesus did at the cross, His suffering, His death, the price He paid for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, so we might not have guilt anymore. So given that, what's your attitude towards our sin? If there's some sin in us that we think is not a big deal with God, some sin in us, we don't want to give up. 
Friends, and we don't recognize that Christ died for those sins. We don't see the seriousness of our sin, and really we should not partake. Ask Him to show you that. But if we need help to battle against sin, if we need strength, if we need help to truly love others in the body of Christ, friends, by all means, we take. We need this. So let's take a moment and examine our our own hearts before God confessing our sins uh, as we prepare to come to the table. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we would ask that truth would not make us arrogant. But Father, that your truth would cause us to see our own sin clearly. That Father, we realize we look out at the world there, but for the grace of God go I. Father, we're amazed that you show us your grace and your mercy when we deserve nothing. And we confess our sin before you, Father. We struggle. Father, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't walk with you as we should. Uh, Father, we do things we shouldn't. Uh, we don't do what we should do. So, Lord, forgive us, we pray. Father, remind us as we come to this, Lord, that we are forgiven not because we're good, but because of what Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.